Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. It's going to be up on the screen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to invite our uh, lead pastor, Billy Glosson, up. I'm going to pray for him. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to meet together, to share in worship and praise and fellowship and communion and sitting under the word with brothers and sisters. I'm so grateful for this time that we have every week. I pray that as Billy opens up the word, that you would um, illuminate our hearts, Lord, open our ears to what you would have us hear, challenge us, encourage us where it's needed, and um, Lord, just be with Billy, give him clear words and a clear mind. And I pray that as we sit under the word, that we would be encouraged in the gospel and we would be mindful of all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, if you guys want to go ahead and be seated. So again, we are in Ephesians chapter 3. It's been a really enjoyable, fun time to go through the book of Ephesians. So again, we're a young church plant here in Morganton. Um, we are excited about what God's doing. Our hope and uh, joy is that we would launch early 2020, and that leading up to that, we're doing these, what we've called foundation gatherings. And the idea is we want to lay a clear-cut foundation for who we are as a church, what our, our vision is, what our mission is, and what it is that we value. And so we picked the book of Ephesians because Ephesians is this really epic, amazing, wonderful letter that Paul writes to churches throughout the Asia Minor uh, region near Ephesus. It's these young church plants who need a gospel foundation, and that's what we need. And so that's why we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And so we find ourselves at the end of chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul writes this really amazing, wonderful prayer for the church in Ephesus, yes, but also for future believers. So in this prayer, we kind of get just so much goodness, and I couldn't help but think of all the times that we pray for things. So a couple weeks ago, it was a typical night in our house when our daughter was uh, panic-stricken because she couldn't find her favorite blanket, and she's looking everywhere for it, can't find it. We tore the house apart until finally I found it. The couch ate it right? And so I was relieved, she was relieved, and Hannah said, oh, I'm so glad we found it. I prayed that we would find it. You guys ever think it's silly to pray about little things like that? Maybe not, maybe not. Um, maybe you're like me this week. Our kid couldn't sleep. I um, was at a conference this week in Orlando with our church planning network, Acts 29. Got back kind of late, um, kissed my wife Hannah, ready to go to sleep, and got about two hours of beautiful, wonderful sleep and then didn't sleep anymore because our kid was sick and kept waking us up, um, scared and not tired because we, like foolish young parents, gave her prednisone, which is, a, you know, a, a steroid right before bed because we're real smart. So maybe you're like me in that moment and you cry out to God like I did at three in the morning, please, God, let her sleep, please, just a little, like a little bit. She did not. So we got very little sleep that night. But Here's the deal. When I, when I thought about this, these times I pray when there's like little things I want, 
I sat down this week to, to put this sermon to paper, and I was pushing through, thinking about all the things that I wanted to articulate, thinking about all the things that I wanted to communicate, and I was so busy doing that I wasn't being. And I was convicted because here I am trying to write a sermon that's about a prayer, and I'm not praying. It hit me that sometimes I pray for the small things, but I trust myself with the big things, right? Maybe the problem is you and I are not praying, but we should be actually praying all the time. We should. I can't help but think of a story from G. Campbell Morgan. He had given this really powerful sermon on prayer, and afterwards a little old lady comes up to him and says, hey, do you think we should pray for even just the very little things in our lives or just the really big things? And he paused and simply replied, ma'am, can you think of anything in your life that's too big for God? Really, can you? I think that Paul would say amen to that. How often do we have that kind of mentality when it comes to the power of God? Paul here is praying for the Ephesians. He's asking God to work in their hearts, praying to the God who is able, to the God who is able. And God is not just able to do beyond what we ask, but he's abundantly beyond. But that's not even enough. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond what we ask. And even that's not the limit. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think according to the power that is at work within us. So what is it that you need? Think about it. We should all be encouraged to pray in faith, asking God to do far beyond all that we could ask or think. Again, over the last few weeks, we've been digging into Ephesians, going line by line, verse by verse, through this incredibly rich book. And there's so many rich things that come up. And what I want us to see this week is the idea that as believers, as God's church, we are empowered. We are. What I want to communicate this evening is this. We are empowered to ask our able God. We are empowered to ask our able God. I want us to have confidence as we pray, understanding this. We serve a powerful God. We do. But I want us to have a sober confidence. We should pray in faith, asking God to do far beyond all that we can ask or think. And again, last week we talked specifically about how God uses even our affliction, even our suffering for our good and for his glory. And knowing this, that this God who is sovereignly orchestrating the cosmos, the God who looks at time and simply says, I am. This God, if we, if we can look to him and see his immensity, then we can trust that he is able. And this is not a call to prosperity. This is a call to courage. This is what we talk about when we say we are empowered because God is able. He is. God is able to do the miraculous and leave you in awe. But he's also able to turn tragedy into triumph. This evening, I want to explore Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, his rejoicing, as it were, in the power and the glory of God. We're going to walk through this, and we're going to see this first. First, we should pray for gospel renewal. We should pray for gospel renewal. Look back at the text with me. Let's jump down to verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying for what I would summarize here as gospel renewal. Gospel renewal. Gospel renewal is actually one of our core values here at Coram Deo Church. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to throw this up on the screen. 
Gospel renewal is the renewal of our hearts and our minds by the gospel of Jesus, leading us to love and serve others. And so as we do with all of our values, we see this in two ways. The church gathered what we're doing right now and then scattered what we do throughout the week. So gathered, it looks like fostering growth in the body by transformative teaching. That's why we preach expositionally, which just means we preach through books of the Bible, we teach what the Bible tells us. Intentional leadership development, so we're always constantly trying to develop and cultivate leadership here. And then finally, submitting our hearts to the reign of Jesus. We want it to be all about Jesus, the gospel to constantly bringing us back to that. And then scattered as we leave, that we are participating in God's will through mission to do justice show compassion, and make peace here in Morganton and Burke County as it is in heaven. And this is what Paul is praying for, for the Ephesians. He's praying that their hearts, their minds, they would be renewed by the gospel. That in so doing, our hearts would overflow with the knowledge of the love of Christ. So let me just say this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. How do you, how do you feel when you hear that? Do you disbelieve it? Do you doubt it because you're suffering? Do you disbelieve it because there's great sin in your life? Do you disregard it because it seems trite, like a little kid's song? It's overly simple. It's not something that you've truly plumbed to its depths. Do you dismiss it because you're just so busy with life and its cares that you don't have time to dwell on deep truths? If so, then Paul prayed not only for the Ephesian church, but for you and I saying this. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays here that we would know the staggering enormity of God's love, and his prayer is evidence of God's love for us as well. Here's the truth. Not many of us pray, but most of us who do pray, we pray mainly for ourselves. But in love, Paul prays for the church and for us while sitting in a jail cell suffering and alone. Paul doesn't doubt that God loves you, but he did doubt that you would truly know it, that you would really believe it, and that you would deeply receive it in a passionate, experiential, and personal way. See, many of us as Christians, we know that God loves us, but we know it like someone who's taken a driver's ed class and has never driven a car. Paul wants God's love to be set firmly in our minds like the foundation of a building. And he wants even more than that. He wants the love of God like a plant rooted deeply in nourishment and able to flourish to be the deep root in our soul. He wanted us, along with all of the saints, to know that God's love is wide enough to welcome anyone anywhere. It's long enough to stretch from the beginning of time to the end. It's deep enough to reach down to the worst of sinners. And it's high enough to transport us to God's heavenly kingdom. Because God's love is boundless, it's infinite, it's unending. It's something that we can know truly, but not fully. There's no way. Paul strained to find even the words to explain it. we got to remember Paul's audience. They're Christians scattered in churches throughout the city of Ephesus in what is modern-day Turkey. These Christians intellectually knew God loved them. But they needed, as do we, to fully know the truth of God's love, not in the way we know the directions to our homes. Here's the deal. 
And churches like this that come from a Reformed perspective, that want to dig deep in the scriptures, we value theology, sound doctrine very much. But anything to do with experience, anything to do with emotions, we run for the hills because it's weird and we don't want to see that. We want to make sure that we're firm gospel-centered. Well, to be gospel-centered means that we actually experience and celebrate the love of Christ, that we deeply feel it. In fact, it says here that that's what strength is. That we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. We need to know this more than intellectually. We need to know it in the way that a dearly loved child knows it when they hear their father call their name, inviting them to run to him as he smiles and laughs with arms outstretched, ready to catch them, hold them up, and kiss them on the forehead. God wants us to know that he loves us like that. Paul prayed that we would grasp this love. And that word grasp is kind of a curious one to use here. It means to take or to seize eagerly, to grasp or embrace, especially with the fingers or arms, or to lay hold of with the mind. Too many Christians, what we do is we pit knowledge against experience, the head against the heart, and the truth is both are needed to grasp God's love. The love of God is what happens when the truth in our heads captivates the affections of our hearts. And it spurs us on to grasp the love of God in our lives. As the love of God continues to increase, it captivates our hearts and we grasp onto his love. We're changed and we become increasingly mature in Christ. And the reason this is, is because our affections then determine our actions. As we're rooted and grounded in love, we begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates, namely sin. This transforming of our affections results in the transforming of our actions. Right? The more we love God, the more we delight to do what he says. See, the inverse is what we do all the time. It's what, what happened in the South for me. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Do good, be a good person. You know, don't spit, chew, or cuss, or go with girls who do. You know that whole adage. But the reality is that if we actually want transforming change in our lives, we need to experience the love of God. And that's our delight to serve him, to be obedient to him, not our duty. Because we know those things don't save us, but that Christ alone saves us. The truth is there is one answer to all of our problems. A full understanding of God's love for us. A gospel renewal. That's what you and I need deeply. Therefore, this, this renewal... Right? This experiential love of God is something we must pray for. It's something we must pursue together by the power of the Holy Spirit, both for us as a church and for ourselves individually, just as Paul did. Unexpectedly, it's often in times of suffering that God's love becomes fully known. Um, my wife and I became foster parents recently, and if you want to know um, what it's like to take a kid and, and try to love them and, and nurture them and be like resisted a lot and to feel all the expectations you've ever had just dumped out the window. Just come talk to us afterwards. We love to talk to anybody about it, please. But yet in the midst of all of it, we're constantly talking to each other about how we're seeing newness and God's love and his mercy for us. And how in the world could God be as patient with me when I feel like I'm losing my patience in five minutes? God is so good. And when his love fully becomes known to us, it is overwhelming how he can use even suffering, even difficulties, even hard moments of our lives to remind us that he is stable. When things break, we're reminded of the one who remains true, the one who never fails. Don't just read the words of Paul's prayer, but remember where they were written. While he's in prison, while he's hungry, while he's hurting, while he's suffering, he's likely writing by candlelight on a dirty floor. 
He's yearning that we would experience the love of God as deeply and as passionately as he did. How could he do this? In his suffering, Paul was constantly reminded of the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. The death of Jesus in our place for our sins as our suffering Savior. Indeed, to speak of the love of God is to speak of the cross of Christ. Paul's life illustrates the fact that in the kindness of God, some of our most painful seasons teach us the most about the love we enjoy because of the suffering that Jesus endured. So we should pray. We should pray that God would give us this gospel renewal, that he would strengthen us in the inner man, that the whole of our life would be transformed. So often, though, we fail to not only see God's immense love for us, but we fail to see his power. We fail to see his power to do beyond all that we could ask or think. So we start by praying for gospel renewal, but we move on and we see, second, that we should know that God is able. We should know he is able. Look again at verses 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We need to understand who God is and that he is powerful. Think about these characteristics. First, this idea, God is omnipotent. Omnipotent. What that means is God has unlimited power. He's able to do anything, right? From Genesis to Revelation, we see God's mighty power at work. So just think about this. I'm going to give you a couple points on this idea of omnipotence. First, think about God's power in creation. God spoke the entire universe into existence out of nothing but his word alone. Okay? Again, I can't get my kid to stay in bed, but God just says light and there's light. God says cosmos and there's stars and galaxies. Romans 1.20, Paul writes this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Psalm 33, we'll look at verses 6 and 9. It says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Or as Jeremiah exclaimed, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah 32, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Catch this, nothing is too hard for you. Every day, all around us, we have evidence to remind us of God's omnipotence. Whether we look at the vastness of the universe with billions of galaxies containing billions of stars, or if we look at the complexity of our own bodies, the incredible design, even at the microscopic level, we see evidence of a powerful creator, right? Even if you just swat a gnat away, I was on top of Table Rock last week, and there were gnats all up in my face on top of a mountain. I don't know why that is. Maybe someone could tell me later. But in that moment, if you were to stop and think, have you ever paused to think about how difficult it would be to design a creature that small that can not only fly, but can eat and reproduce? All of creation, every single bit of it, shouts that God is a powerful creator. But he's not only powerful in creation, he's powerful in his judgment. Throughout the Bible, there are examples of God unleashing a small amount of his power to bring judgment on rebellious sinners. Right? He brought the worldwide flood in Noah's day. 
He confused the language of proud men at the Tower of Babel. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. He unleashed the ten plagues on Egypt and then destroyed the Egyptian army in the sea. On numerous occasions, God's wrath consumed thousands of people in a short time through plagues or warfare or natural disasters. So not only does God create, but he executes judgment flawlessly, quickly. But we see, his mercy. we see not only his power in judgment, but also his power in mercy, in mercy. You see, the idea that God saves sinners reveals his mercy. Obviously, exhibit A is the Apostle Paul, right? He was persecuting the church with a vengeance when God stopped him in his tracks and changed him into the man who would preach to the Gentiles, whom he formerly detested. Like every now and again, you just got to see that. This is like if somebody was going around and burning, church, you know, burning black churches and say, uh, the leader of the KKK. If all of a sudden they were like, you know what? My life has changed. I'm going to do everything I can to love and serve and bless the black church and reach into urban communities. That's what this is like. He hated Gentiles, and now he is a missionary to them. He pins books of the Bible. God's mercy is epic and sweeping. In our text, Paul refers to the power that works within us. It takes us all the way back to chapter 1, where Paul said that the same power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, which, by the way, just happens to be the greatest display of power in all of human history, is what raised us from spiritual death to life. Meaning that if you're sitting in here this afternoon and you believe in Jesus, you are a living miracle. You are. In Ephesians 3, 7, Paul referred to the working of God's power that converted him and made him a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. And here in verse 16, he refers to God's power through his spirit that strengthens us in our inner man. When the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, Jesus told the disciples that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And when they exclaimed, then who can be saved? Jesus responded with this in Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We have to remember that salvation, someone coming to Jesus Christ is not a display of human willpower. It's a display of God's mighty power in raising the spiritually dead to new life. It's incredible. And finally, we see God's power in the impossible. One of the main purposes of this prayer is to realign ourselves to see that God is sovereign and powerful and we need him and we need his power. Coram Deo, in our infancy as a church plant, we have to know this is true, right? If we think foolishly that we can pull it all off ourselves, then I guess we don't need to pray. But God often puts his people in impossible situations to display his power and glory. I can't tell you how many times, like, since we moved here, I'm like, are we nuts? Like, did we make a huge mistake? I had a really good job. We were on staff at a great church. We had a lot of good friends, and we moved back home. Like, are we crazy? And over and over, I'm reminded again that I am not the one who is able, but he is. He is the one who is powerful. And God loves to use the seemingly incapable to do what only he is capable of doing. Abraham and Sarah were physically beyond the ability to conceive children all the way back in Genesis. Even when they were younger, Sarah had been unable to conceive. So that's why when she's old and God says, hey, you're going to have a kid, Sarah laughs. She laughs at the idea that she would conceive. And the Lord confronted her with the rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? In response to God's promise, she did conceive Isaac. And later when God asked Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham obeys 
Because, and this is what it says in Hebrews 11, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham's like, okay, my wife who was barren, when she's an old lady, had a kid. So God, if you want me to sacrifice this kid, you are able and you'll bring him back because you will keep your promise. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. God directed Moses and the Israelites to leave Egypt by a route where they had this big giant thing called the Red Sea in front of them. And behind them was the pursuing Egyptian army ready to kill them. They have no human means of escape. And in that impossible situation, Moses tells the panicked people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. So the Lord then miraculously opens the sea so that the Israelites could pass through, but he closed the sea over the Egyptian army. Again, nothing is impossible with God. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is that of Elisha, who's surrounded by the army of King Aram. There are horses and chariots. They've come to take him captive. And his panic servant is like, okay, this is going to go real bad for us. There's two of us and a whole bunch of them. We're toast. And Elisha calmly answers. It says this in 2 Kings 6, 16. Do not fear those who are with us. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays in verse 17. Oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Nothing is impossible with God. Another example is from the New Testament. Herod had imprisoned the apostle Peter, and he's planning to kill him. Peter is chained to two guards. They're like, you know, we know what happened with Jesus. We know he was in a tomb, so let's be doubly sure. Hook him up to some people. He's not going anywhere. So he's inside a locked cell with more guards, with more guards outside, He's inside of a prison with a locked iron outer door. In response to the church's prayer for Peter's release, the Lord sends an angel who causes Peter's chains to fall off. And he leads Peter through open iron doors, past all of the guards, out into the streets as a free man. Again, we see that nothing is impossible for our God. However, prior to Peter's escape, Herod executed James, the brother of John. Was the church praying for James's release? Well, we're not told, but I can imagine they probably were. Although God could easily have delivered James, he allowed him to die. But he rescued Peter. I think what we need here is we need to remember the words of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is also often known as like the faith chapter. It's what we call the hall of heroes. We remember all these sweeping epic characters from the Old Testament. But the reality is the real hero is always Jesus over and over again and again. Hebrews 11 33 through 35, it says this, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, I don't think anybody in here has done that, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Now we hear that, and we would all say, amen, preach it, right? We love stories like that. But we got to keep reading. Keep going in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the, great, with the sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They believed God, but he did not deliver them from their trials. So here's the deal. While God often displays his mighty power by working when we are incapable of doing anything in our own strengths. At times, for reasons we do not usually understand, he chooses not to display his power in such ways. At those times, his power is displayed through the patient, joyous endurance of his people in the midst of suffering. Here's the deal. Even when God chooses not to deliver us, it's not because he's lacking in power. He is able to do far beyond what we ask or think because, again, he's omnipotent. But another aspect to consider in God's power is that is in tandem with his goodness. Right? He's so powerful. He's so good that he can take even difficulties, even afflictions, even trials, and use them for his glory. My wife loves the story of Corey Timboom. If you've never read The Hiding Place, you should. Um, it's an amazing, epic story of this, this family who was hiding Jews during the Holocaust. <clears throat> and they, uh, they would pray and study the scripture and they would teach people all about Jesus as they suffered, as they endured. There's a story that says, you know, as they were meeting, they wondered why did the guards never come in? And one of the guards speaks up, and I'm probably ruining a moment for you, but that's okay. The guard comes in, and he was like, wait, people are going to read this. It's too good, I'm going to say it. The guards come in, and she's like, you know, why did you never come and stop us? And they said, well, we, we would, but we just couldn't endure the fleas. They never even noticed the fleas. They were so caught up in God's presence and his amazingness that God used their suffering, God used their affliction to move forward the gospel. Often God is so good, he's so powerful, he's so merciful, like a surgeon, we talked about this last week, who cuts away exactly what he needs so that he can accomplish his task. God is so good. We have to understand this, that not only is he powerful, he's good. God is willing to do far beyond what we ask or think because he is good. Satan tempted by Eve, was tempted Eve by getting her to doubt God. And the way he did this was by getting her to doubt that his commandments were good. When we're facing impossible trials, we've got to be on guard against the same temptation. It's easy to begin to doubt that God really cares about us. It's really, really easy. God, why would you let this happen to me? Why would this affliction occur? Where is your power to deliver me? We have to be reminding ourselves over and over again of the truth of Romans 8. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is working. It goes on in Romans 8 to say that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. If he did the greatest thing in giving his own son, he will now do the relatively smaller things according to his good and perfect will. In the same vein, Peter is I want to look at uh, Peter's letter because he says this. Peter writes to those, again, who are suffering terrible persecution at the hands of the wicked Nero, who, by the way, decided he liked to use Christians as lampposts. That's what Nero did. Not a good dude. Nero is murdering Christians, and he tells that 
church, and he tells us to cast all of our cares on the Lord because he cares for us. But he warns us about the devils prowling around like a lion to devour us, and he adds this in 1 Peter 5. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced of your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will establish, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, even, even in the worst of trials, we must remember that God in his goodness is willing to do far beyond what we ask or even think. And so with this understanding of God's power and goodness, we move on to what is our last and final point, and it's this. We should ask. We should ask. We should ask for gospel renewal. We should ask for power. And we should ask for that which would further God's glory through Jesus and through his church. Right? Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The first aspect of this asking is that we should note that God's glory is the reason he created the world. His glory is the reason he created the world. Jonathan Edwards, the famous uh, early American theologian, wrote a brilliant essay on this subject. Essentially, Edwards argued that God would be unrighteous if he did not delight fully in what is most beautiful and worthy of delight, which is himself and his glory. While it would be utterly sinful for us to delight in our own glory because Again, we're imperfect, sinful creatures. It's utterly right for God because he alone is the absolute, perfect, eternal creator. Also, God's glory is the goal of redemption. Paul makes this clear throughout the book of Ephesians. As God saves people who were formerly dead in their sins, seats them with Jesus in the heavenly places, and builds them into a holy temple, in doing all of that, he is glorified. The conclusion or the doxology at the end of Paul's prayer concludes the first half of the letter on the same note with which it began in the introduction, specifically in praise of God for his mighty salvation, which was initiated in eternity, carried into effect in Jesus, and intended to contribute to the praise of God's glorious grace for all eternity. Paul wanted his readers to have a theological perspective on God's mighty saving purposes. This is God's plan that his glory, his glory, would reverberate throughout the ages. So why would God purpose us and create us for his glory? Why? Is it because he's just a big, giant egomaniac in the sky? Well, no, we just talked about how he is the only one who's actually worthy of glory. But remember what he said in chapter 2, verse 7? Look with me real quick. Ephesians 2, verse 7. So that, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Can it be that our God is this good? Catch this. We are created to bring glory to God so that he can pour out his kindness on us. What? That... So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Yeah, that's what it says. I just you have to reread stuff sometimes because I think we just we have this cursory. Uh, we grow up in the church. We know maybe we know good theology. Maybe we get passionate, but we read the Bible so quickly sometimes, or maybe not at all, and so we miss things like this. 
that God is so good that he creates beings to bring glory to him, not because he needs us. He was perfectly content through all eternity in the Trinity, but he creates us just because he's so good that he wants to just show off by saying, you know what, you're going to glorify me and I'm going to pour out my kindness on you. Yes and amen. We pray asking that we would further God's glory. And as we pray, Coram Deo realized this, that God's glory is displayed in his church. His glory is displayed when we live in harmony and obedience, asking the Father to work through us for his purpose and glory. Paul puts the church first because he has been showing how the church is God's new creation brought into existence by the cross that breaks down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Theologian F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, God is to be glorified in the church because the church comprising Jew and Gentiles is his masterpiece of grace. But since the church is the body of Christ, the head, God's glory in the church cannot be divorced from his glory in Christ Jesus. This glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus will continue not only in time but throughout eternity as he continues to show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In this context, Paul is laying the doctrinal foundation for the appeal to love and unity and holiness, which is exactly where we're headed next week. The application of this mind-stretching truth is that God is only glorified in the church in the present age when we live in harmony. So the question then, whose glory are you contending for? Whose glory are you living for? Are we as the church displaying to the world a unity around the gospel for the sake of God's glory or are we contending for someone else's glory? Man, we live in a divisive world. Just If you don't have social media, download Facebook and then delete it because you'll be dumbfounded. There's a great group you can join called Let's Talk Burke County, which means let's just hate each other, Burke County, where people just get on there and they're like, I went to this place and it was the worst. Well, you're an idiot. Duh! And it's just back and forth. That's what it is. We live in a world where far too often we're concerned about our own personal glory or political glory. Man, we should repent of our fear, of our lack of trust in God's power. God has sustained his church throughout the ages and he will reign throughout eternity. Just sometimes I think we need to say that out loud because we act like the world is falling. Like the sky's falling out, everything's going wrong. Man, we're all gonna die. It's like, hold on just a minute. Who spoke the world into existence? You? A candidate? Someone else? Or was it the king of ages? The ancient of days? The one who was and is and is to come. The one again who looks at time and simply says, I am. Because nothing else can contain, be too complicated to understand his name. We should ask that God's glory would be furthered in us and through his church. So in summation of Paul's prayer in this chapter, we get to the what, how, and why. Briefly, I just want to go through this. We get to the heart of this sermon, that we are empowered to ask our able God, and Paul gets to the what. What? Well, God is able. He is. Paul heaps on these phrases to describe God's sovereign might. He's able to do above, but that's not all. He's able to do above and beyond, but that's not all. He's able to do above and beyond all that we ask, and that's not even it, to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. God can do more 
God can do more in response to one prayer than we can do in 100 years of planning. We could come up with every idea to say, you know what, we love our town, we love Morganton, we love that this has become a place that celebrates the Imago Day, as there's so many incredible artists that have come here to celebrate and create. We love that our town is just inspiring ingenuity and entrepreneurship, and we can celebrate all these things. We could come up with all kinds of great ideas to, to love and serve the city, and God could accomplish far more in one prayer than anything we could think of or do. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God alone is sovereign? That he is the one who raises Jesus from the dead and places him as head over the church and has put all things under his feet? If you know this, then you should pour out your heart to him, believing that he is able. You and I, we need a vision of God that increases our faith in God's greatness. And we do this by filling our mind with the word of God, by drawing from a deeper well. And that means we need to turn off the TV for a minute, set the phone down, and draw deeper to know this great God. So what? He is able. How? How does God work beyond our imaginations? Well, Paul says it's according to the power that works in us. Again, we think about the examples of the Bible. That's why I hit on these examples in scripture earlier. Men like Abraham, Moses, others, Gideon, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Nehemiah, the disciples, the leaders throughout church history. God is able to work to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Not just ordinary people, but wicked, broken people. Right? We think of like mighty King David. Dude killed somebody so he could sleep with his wife. Okay? It's not the hall of heroes. It's the hall of broken messes that somehow God uses for his glory. He's able to do extraordinary things. So how? It's his power at work in us. And why? Why does God do these things? Well, Paul says it in verse 21. This should be the ultimate goal for our prayers, of pow- for power and love. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God blesses his people for his own glory. Paul says that God desires his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. John Stott, who is amazing, he says it well. He says this, God desires glory in the bride and in the bridegroom, in the community of peace and in the peacemaker. For how long? Forever. Forever God will be glorified for his power and his love. Forever God will be glorified by his people. Forever God will be glorified in Christ Jesus, who is the lamb who was slain. Forever God will be glorified in Christ, who fell to his knees before the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, who took the cup of wrath that we could receive the cup of grace and who has reconciled us to the Father and to one another, and who now dwells in our hearts through faith by the Spirit. It's to this God alone be the glory forever. Here is the truth. We will all die one day. It's a heartwarming message for you. But you can live forever through Jesus Christ, who gives you access right here, right now, to the Father in prayer. If you don't know Christ He is calling you to eternal life. Would you respond to him this evening? For those in this room who do know him, who are seeking to walk in obedience and to apply these words, this evening would you see how to live in this empowering truth? First, don't be guilty of not having because you haven't asked. Right? God says this, Psalm 81, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So open wide. Ask. Ask. Two, second, don't be guilty of not having because you you doubt God's ability or his willingness to give. Again, nothing is impossible with God. 
As the loving father, he will give good gifts to his children who ask. We can't always understand his purposes, but we should never doubt his ability or his goodness towards us. And third, and this is one for all of us, Coram Deo, don't be guilty of praying small prayers. Pray big prayers. It's impossible to ask God for too much. Assuming that it's in line with his will and his glory, ask. Ask God to do the incredible, the impossible. We, we look at our county, and it is overwhelming. There's no way that one church plant on its own can do this. And we're not foolish to think that. We're not thinking that, you know, we're the answer to everyone's problems. We're trying to join arm in arm with other churches to seek the glory of God to be made known here in Burke County. But we need to pray big prayers, sweeping epic prayers. Again, because less than half of Burke County actually even darkens the door of a church on Sunday. Beyond that, there is overwhelming drug, meth, and opioid addiction. There is unbelievable darkness in this place, and we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray big prayers. Phillips Brooks says it this way. He says, pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God, in answering it, will not wish you had made it larger. Pray not for crutches, but for wings. Finally, pray for yourself. Pray for this church, that for his glory, God would do through us that which is humanly inexplicable. That people would show up on Sunday and say, who's this church for? As they see a diversity of people coming together under the banner of Christ. Pray for the powerful conversion of many sinners, that lots and lots of people would meet Jesus. Pray for repentance. Pray for holiness for this church. And pray that God would be glorified in his church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for the hope that you've given us in Jesus. God, we ask that you would work in power. Lord, that you would do what only you can do. God, we're so thankful for the hope that you've given us in Jesus. We're grateful, Lord, that we can know that even, God, even in the midst of tragedy and suffering, that somehow, God, you use that for our good and your glory. Lord, would you continue to make much of yourself? We pray all of this with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the finished work of Jesus. Amen.